Hey everybody, this is Karen Stefano, author of the forthcoming memoir, What a Body Remembers. And today I have the honor of speaking with Devin Galladay, the author of 10,000 Miles with My Dead Father's Ashes, or Mi Padre Es Muerto en la Bolsa. Uh, Devin, how are you? I'm doing great, Karen. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm, I think I'm an eight today on a scale of one to 10. That's All right. Well, good. I would say eight is, is actually pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see if we can turn that into a 10. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's do our best. Um, I want to start by reading uh, the, the jacket description on your book uh, to kind of introduce listeners to what we're going to be talking about here. So it was Devin Galladay's job to take the ashes and pour them into the waters of Cadiz, Spain, after his father's death. Carrying them across Spain by car, train, and backpack, this was their swan song, their buddy picture, come to life. Half a mile from the Mediterranean, though, Devin lost his father's ashes. Standing in the middle of a windy cobblestone street in Old Town Cadiz, he wondered what the hell just happened, not just in that moment, but the 40 years prior. This is a wild-eyed history of secret family stories that includes 50 stolen cars, sacred African fertility dolls, a Darth Vader mask-wearing junkie, a mysterious secret family, a Playboy magazine found in a sewer hidden next to toilet paper wrapped downers, a Vegas hooker with one impressive breast, a hero's journey, and traveling across the world with a black jug that contained his father in a rolling suitcase. That so. sounds like a great book. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> um, uh, I don't know who wrote your jacket copy, but uh, if it was you, if it was your publisher, but uh, if you don't want to pick up this book, there's something seriously wrong with you, I think. Wow. Well, I, I, I thank you. I thank you, Karen. Uh, yeah, that is, that is uh, my story in a nutshell. And would you be so kind as to read for us, um, if, if you could start uh, with the first passage in chapter one? The first passage in chapter one, I mean, where it, I mean, quite literally from the first line? Yeah, from or, the first line, if you don't mind, and then stopping where uh, you have the starred asterisks, uh, kind of noting the, the break in time. Oh, so mean like the first two pages? I mean, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Page, first page and a half. Yeah, because I because I I love it. And uh, again, you've got the you've got the person in the bookstore. Pick, they pick up the book from that awesome jacket copy. They're going to start reading chapter one, and I want everyone listening to to see what they're going to read. All right, uh, my my pleasure. So, chapter one. Uh, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but your dad's dead. She spit it out in one piece. I stood in my living room in my underwear and bare feet with the phone glued to my ear. The gardener was outside my window using one of those contraptions that made an incessant grinding noise, but there was no doubt as to what I had heard. And I knew it was true, even though I hadn't told her who I was. Is this Devin, she asked? And I responded, 
Who's calling? Dad taught me early not to offer too much. Maybe it was a collection agency or someone I had knocked up or one of 50 other things I didn't want to deal with at the time. I still answer the phone this way, likely from some distant residual fear I clung to that the world was not a friendly place, even though my life had been content for ages. I suppose old habits die hard. The sensation swarmed up my body. I launched into big, uncontrollable, heaving sobs that left me shaking. Every time I slowed down, the crying returned. My reaction surprised me. As if I had decided that dad was nothing more than a distant pile of unresolved resentments. His death had long been expected and perhaps overdue, at least in the land of intellect. My emotional terrain, however, was another story. The call came from a woman named Kathy, who described herself as dad's wife of 15 years. She confided that she was 30 years his junior and that he helped raise her two daughters. Dad had died of a heart attack two weeks earlier, lying on his stomach with a cigarette in hand in their trailer in St. George, Utah, while Kathy was at work. Nothing seemed wrong when she left him in front of the television. He had told Kathy several times that when he died, there was to be no funeral. He had instructed that no one from his family should know about his death until he had been cremated. His dying wish was that he be scattered off the coast of Cadiz, Spain, to return home while Ave Maria played. Really, he wanted to be sent into outer space on a rocket, but he knew that wasn't going to happen. Kathy sighed before and after speaking, her words spilling out in one long struggling breath. I shook my head and gulped for air between tears. Dad wanted to return home to Spain. He wasn't from Spain. He was French, German, and Irish. And to my knowledge, he had never even been out of the United States. As for Ave Maria, he would not be caught dead in a church. And he'd been living in a trailer park in Utah. He was a city guy. None of it made sense. Uh, I love it. I love that that beginning. Um, I especially connected with the line, uh, his death had been long expected and perhaps overdue, at least in the land of intellect. And my my mom died recently and she was 93 years old had been uh on hospice for 15 16 months when it's supposed to be a 6 month journey mm-hmm. and when i got the call from my sister telling me and my mom hadn't known who i was for 99% of the time for the for the past, for her last year. Mm. And when I got the call from my sister, my overwhelming emotion was just shock and disbelief. And so this line really resonated with me uh, because I, I started the book uh, shortly. I, I literally think I started reading this book the day that I got the news. Wow. And uh, yeah, and uh and, and so that line just really stuck with me because, yeah, there's 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 the land of intellect and there's that really bizarre planet called grief. And uh, uh, intellect doesn't really apply on that planet. No, not even marginally so. I mean, I think um, 
you know, my father lived a lifestyle that I was certain that he would have died, you know, much sooner. Um, and it was like something it was, you know, obviously, I don't want to give too many details. But as right. as my relationship with him unfolded, I just assumed that he had been dead a half a dozen yeah. times. Yeah. Um, and, and having it confirmed was just, it was, there was this odd thing that was happening. Like my body was like responding in almost a chemical way. Mm-hmm. And and part of my brain was like, well, but you knew. And he, yeah, who's surprised by this? And at the same time, that my body didn't care about that. You know what right. I mean? Like there yeah. was just this emotional component that that switched on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it had a it had a mind of its own. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you on that front, that's for sure. Um yeah, to, to put it mildly. Uh, your your book describes uh, an unusual childhood uh, due to your your parents' personalities, and I don't think I'm giving too much away here because it happens early in the book. But uh, you talk about these god awful outfits that your mother made you wear uh, that got you just. Whoops. Chewed up, yeah, at at school in front of your peers, <laughs> yeah. And, and then there's your it's this it's it's a beautiful scene because here's your obviously deeply flawed father standing up for you, and uh, it was it was really beautiful and unexpected and just the whole scene the the whole situation made me think about how parents just necessarily bring their own human selves, their own flawed selves to parenting. And it's, it's so, it's so fascinating how that, how their flaws and they are, they're human, all parents have their flaws. Um, But it's just, it's just such an interesting dynamic. I mean, do you, do you agree with that? Oh, I, I don't think there's a way not to, uh, uh, agree with that. And, and before we move, before we move on, I just want to say I'm so very sorry for for your loss. I mean, uh, again, I I understand that it was probably on your end as well, expected and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and perhaps overdue. Um, and it's it's still a shock to the system. And there's yeah. no way there's no way you can have a you know a, a parent in your life for that long and not have some sort of an emotional distress over it, whether it's right or wrong or good or yeah. bad, or we should know better, or we had time to grieve before. Right. I, that just doesn't seem to kind of, it doesn't seem to, it, it didn't work that way for me. How about yeah, that? It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't compute. And that's why your line, uh, <clears throat> at least in the land of intellect is so, is so perfect and something that I think, everyone who's gone through grief can re- can relate to yeah w- without question i mean there's without question there's you know that's why it was so it was so challenging for me because as you described you know on the one hand he's really a tool and <laughs> and on another hand he was this really empathetic loving guy who was you know what I mean? Like he was, he was dad and he was sort of the role model that I was given. Mm-hmm. I mean, it took me many years to really understand the depths of his flaws. Um, 
And I think it became easier to understand them when my own flaws started becoming so prevalent, you know, because it was easier to point fingers at him than actually have to really sort of dig down and look at myself, which I think I'd like to believe that that's what the book kind of, uh, you know, is ultimately about, although there's a lot of wackiness to it as well. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm, I'm, pissed at myself having heard you read um pissed to learn that since i went there i don't know 20 years ago 15 years ago that i've been mispronouncing uh i thought it was pronounced cadiz but it's cadiz it's 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 cadiz it depends what variation of spain you are from because it it can be cadiz um but it also can be cadiz with a TH at the end, even though it's a Z spelling. Okay. So either way, I've been getting it wrong all these years. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Live and, live and learn. So uh, True that. <laughs> um, it also, uh, again, this is, this is early in the book, uh, but you describe a fight scene. And uh, you're a young boy and your dad tells you to, to get in a fight and to kick some ass and uh, uh, assert yourself and that this was a necessary thing that you had to do. And I found myself as a reader just cheering for your dad. Uh, but, you, but you say how you beat up this kid and it was the first time that you felt in control. And you talk about how proud your dad was of you. And, but then you say, but you remained afraid of everything. Tell us more uh, about that fear. Well, um, you know, we could probably have a lengthy conversation about whether uh, standing, you're up, standing up for yourself in a physical way is sort of either a, uh, a, a rite of passage for a certain generation of guys. I, I think we were getting a little bit more compassionate. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a, mid, a very middle-aged guy. And in the 70s, I think that's really, you know, it was absolutely much more of a rite of passage. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so on the one hand, yes, I stood up for myself. And I think in the immediate following, it was like there was kind of a, especially when I got kind of a pat on my back from my father. Mm-hmm. I felt, I, I think I felt strong and I felt, you know, I think I, I felt the way a guy is supposed to feel. And I don't know if I was ever intended to be some sort of a street tough guy. You know what I mean? Even the fact that I phrased street tough guy the way I just did mm-hmm. almost like assures you that I'm not a tough guy. Um, and so I don't think I was ever really built for that kind of confrontation. And so on the one hand, it made me feel powerful very briefly, and that didn't fix it. I mean, this is a much larger conversation, but I think mm-hmm. I think we look for, and I don't know what your experience is on this, but I think we look for sort of like the thing that turns off the switch. Oh, my head is so busy. 
I just want this one thing that will turn it off forever and then I can just focus on only the things that I love and do only the things that I want to do and behave only in the ways that I envision that I should be behaving at all times. Right. And that isn't a thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yet, like, And yet we seek it out, don't we? Don't we? Well, we do. I think we're, but I think we're looking for some sort of, you know, this thing that just fixes all of the things. Mm -hmm. And I think, honestly, I think death does that. Everything else is sort of like a negotiation of having to deal, you know, just because I had this one moment of, you know, I suppose we could either say insanity or bravery. Um, that moment was, you know, that was a moment that I got to stand up for myself and perhaps I could have stood up for myself, you know, in more compassionate ways. But at the time it was really kind of a, it was a, it was a big deal, but that doesn't mean the brain gets turned off. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I agree with you. I mean, I think it's definitely a generational thing. Um, I believe it, you know, it's more, I guess, culturally, socially acceptable in the seventies than, uh, perhaps <laughs> it would be today. Um, I guess maybe that depends on which part of the country you live in. Uh, yeah, but, totally. Uh, yeah, but my my fiance, uh, he has a story where he was getting hassled by some kids at school. I think he was in seventh grade, and his older brother said, "There's only one way to deal with this. You have to go, you know, set up a a place that you're where you're going to fight." And you have to go out there and you have to just be a crazy man and kick this kid's ass. And it's just this in this in um, his family. It's just a legendary story. And uh, where his big brother, Steve, uh, pulls up in the car and my fiance, John, jumps out of the car and just wails on this kid. And uh, and, you know, talking about it now i mean you know he's a he's in his mid 50s john uh he's not proud of it but at the, but at the same time he did feel the visceral sense of standing up for himself and and it also had the you know the conclusion if you will of this kid didn't give him shit anymore so it's you know again i mean i think both of us are kind of stepping away from you know advocating outright violence yeah, no, totally. Children, but, totally. but but also recognizing that in the 70s this was a thing and no uh, it was it was without question a thing and i think again sort of like a more of a universal theme in terms of storytelling and writing and just living your life is that at some point you're gonna have to do something that terrifies you mm -hmm. and probably and probably a lot so you might as well get used to being terrified, whether it's a street fight or, you know, having to confront, you know, your own, your own life and your own history, Yeah, which is what you do. Now, I have not had the chance to read your book because your book isn't out until June, right? Right. June 11 is the big day. That is, that is exciting. Um, <laughs> I don't. exciting and scary. Well, I, I, what I can tell you as somebody who has already walked through it, you're going to be fine. <laughs> and I think you just tell the truth and you sing your book's praises. I think it's harder and harder. Uh, I think that we got our memoirs published as a testament to our writing and our storytelling and having something important to say. Thank you. And I, and I think you're, you're right. 
and uh and you know i i I know i'll be fine uh but it's also it's a it's a it's a tender thing to do as as i was literally uh wrapping up final final edits i had this kind of prickle of panic like karen are you sure you want to do this? I mean, you are exposing every bit of your innards and some really unflattering, unflattering stuff um, right. for the whole world to see. And then at that point, it was like, oh, no turning back now. But but I did have that kind of flicker of, wow, uh, this might be this might be TMI. Uh, but, <laughs> here, but here, but here it is anyway. Get ready. So. I actually think, first off, the the TMI notion is is actually a bit of bravery. That's one, and I think the TMI is what allows you to uh, share with other people the things they won't talk about at a dinner yeah. party. Yeah, and yeah. so I think it's incent- I think it's an essential uh, uh, bit that has to be part of the memoir. Like if you're, I mean, I went through the same conversation. Like, okay, the train is leaving the station. What am I going to do? And the train is leaving the station. Okay, then I accept everything. I mean, honestly, when I finished my memoir, uh, you know, my mother is still with me. Uh, so I got to go to her house and say, hey, I finished this memoir. And, uh, you know, I write about everything. And you're in it. And nobody looks good. This is not, you know, this is not a, a sacred book of compliments. <laughs> And she says, well, is it funny? And I said, well, I think it has its moments. And then she was like, okay, well, it has to be funny. Otherwise, you know, you're disowned. Mm-hmm. And, and so we go. But that's all right. I'm, I'm fine with that. But so anyway, I want to talk a little bit about what a body remembers. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. I love, I love talking about myself and my book. Well, then we're, <laughs> we've both come to the right place, haven't we? <laughs> yes, we have. So uh, I'm just going to read what what is on Amazon. Is that all right? Sure. Uh, let's see. On a summer night in 1984, a uh, 19-year-old U.S. Uh, or pardon me, UC Berkeley sophomore Karen Thomas leaves her uniformed patrol job and walks home alone in darkness. At the threshold of her apartment, a man assaults her at knife point. After a soul-chilling struggle, she manages to escape, though she is left traumatized by her assault. Uh, and the subsequent trial of her attacker, she herself goes on to become a criminal defense lawyer. Wow, that sounds intense. Defending those accused of crimes as as heinous as the one committed against her. Fast forward to 2014, 30 years after her assault, when her life once again appears to be crumbling, she stumbles her way through the days navigating a dying marriage, devastating financial loss, and an er- elderly mother slipping into dementia. She becomes fascinated by her own anxiety and PTSD. Why does the body remember what the mind tries so desperately to forget? Her questions prompt a delayed obsession with her assailant. Her assailant. Uh, what becomes of him? What is he doing now? Uh, she, become, she begins a quest of excavation, determined to track him down. What she discovers is life-altering. What a body remembers is an honest from the gut account of one woman's journey to regain her power and confident confidence 
a journey that continues to this day. Uh, wow, that sounds uh, incredible. And uh, just out of curiosity, in hearing me reading it, is mm-hmm. that is there a little wow moment to that for you? Uh, yeah, kind of, um, because obviously I've I've read it. I had input to tweaking it, and uh, but I've never heard someone else read it aloud to me, and it it feels it feels very very different. Well, because it's it's my experience is is that it gets to a point where it's no longer yours. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's a, it's oh, yeah. a story on a library shelf or a bookstore, and anybody can pull it off, and they get to look at it, they get to read it, they get to judge it, mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully they get to identify with it. I mean, I think that's why we write books such as these. Um, what was your inspiration? I mean, was there sort of like a a, a a specific moment was like, okay, I need to write this now. Uh, there, there was, there, there actually was a very specific moment. Um, I had always been a fiction writer and, uh, I'd been playing with the idea of writing this essay about my assault and about the irony that I, made my living, you know, if you will, as a 19-year-old college sophomore, um, by putting on a police uniform, I looked exactly like a cop, except for a little patch that said under the shield on my uniform that said aid. Um, But I made my living walking women home in the darkness to to safety, because Berkeley is a a very dangerous uh, city. Mm. And so, so there's the irony that I chose to, uh, after a shift of protecting women, take off my uniform, put on my regular 19 year old college girl clothes and walk home, um, only to be assaulted. There's, uh, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain amount of, of, irony there. And then, of course, there's the irony that I went on to become a criminal defense lawyer. But the aha moment was I had been playing around with the idea of writing this as an essay. I was going through that process of, is this interesting to anyone but me? It's interesting to me, but does anybody care? And then I was hanging out with some essayists and memoirists and talking about that form versus fiction. And it was at AWP 2013 in Seattle. And it was in the lobby of the Westin Hotel. And I'm with my friends. And it was literally a slap your forehead moment where I said, you guys, I think this might be a book. And so, and that's when the work in earnest began. And then, of course, there was what the jacket description says, the excavation process, uh, where I did research, where I pulled out my old journals from when I was that 19-year-old girl. And then, of course, the research that I did to track down my assailant. And obviously, I'm not going to, there's no, I'm not going to do any spoilers here. But, um, but yeah, 
there was a real defining moment when I decided, wait, this is this is a story that matters. It doesn't just matter to you, Karen. It matters to uh, women everywhere and to men, too. Yeah, I think so. Um, and was it a long process for you to write your story? Uh, well, uh, let me see. I think I, I finished, you know how it is. Um, I finished my book the first time in early 2017. And when you think you've finished your book, you've almost never really finished your book. And, <laughs> right. you know, you know how that goes. And now it's, it's coming out in 2019. So that kind of, that time frame right there kind of tells you, tells you the, tells you the journey, but it was really in 2014 that I did most of the heavy lifting in terms of research, going back to Berkeley, uh, doing, doing that whole thing. And then it was 2016 that I, I did the heavy lifting in terms of getting a first draft down onto the page. So, mm. so how long did it take you to write your book? Oh, forever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But now that said, I wasn't, I don't think there was probably until the last year of like, okay, I'm actually writing a book. Did I take it seriously? Up until that point, I was writing little sort of like vignettes, and I had a writers group that met in my living room, and uh, they were coming every Thursday, and they were bringing you know snacks and pages, mm -hmm. and we would go around the room and we would sit and read and we would talk about each other's writings, um, and even while that process was going on, it was like, well, I'm just putting this collection of stories together even though i knew that it had like a through line to it uh -huh. it probably wasn't until the last year but i mean i had wrote it for about seven years and but it probably wasn't until the last year where it was like okay this is actually a thing this is a thing and yeah. i think i hit um i think i hit about eighty thousand words and i thought no that's that's actually like a book right there <laughs> that's a book so now i just have to actually turn it into the book that it could be. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're, we're yeah. taking in mind that there's going to be a human being that's going to be reading it. Right. And, what... and, you, and attacking the, the structural challenges. Oh, totally. Absolutely. I mean, again, it was initially just sort of like, here are these particular scenes that are meaningful, you know, things that sort of like shaped me and shaped my relationship with my father. And then it became, you know, well, what, you know, how do I, how do I, share this where it becomes potentially meaningful to a reader. Uh, and how do I organize these scenes, you know, into, uh, you know, that's something that holds true. That's, you know, like factually correct as well as being interesting. Right. right. You know? Yeah. And so yes. at some point you just write the hell out of it. Yeah, yeah, you do. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but for me, it didn't really come together until I said, all right, you know, just, I don't think I'm there yet. But just for the fuck of it, I'm gonna like, break this down into chapters. And, you know, not judging, just, you know, just giving it a whirl. And it was that exercise, and of course, the initial chapters I picked got moved around and and whatnot. Uh, that's just the process. 
but in doing that, that's how I saw, okay, yeah, this is, this is a book, this works, this structure works, or it's, it's not working yet, but we're going to get there, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is, um, I mean, it's, it is tricky because I had initially written my book purely in chronological order. Mm -hmm. And because so much of the sort of like really intense childhood emotional stuff was sort of upfront, I remember having a, a friend from the writers group uh, said, wow, that is maybe a little too much. It's, you know what I mean? Like it's a little bit too much pain all at once. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Right. So I had to kind of, I, I wanted to be mindful of organizing it in a way that not only framed the story better, um, which I think ultimately is sort of, you know, the trip to Spain. Um, but I think it was important to just sort of like, hey, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not here to drag you into my therapy session. And so, so it has to be sort of like on top of just merely, yes, I need to put it all out on the page. Yes, there needs to be too much information. Yes, there needs to be uh, uh, notions in it that people who are not going to talk to their best friend may be able to identify in our stories, but it has to be presented in a way that's palatable. Right. Yeah, I uh, agreed 100%. And it's interesting, uh, you know, you sharing what your friend in your writing group said, uh, because immediately an alarm went off in my head saying, no, it wasn't, it wasn't too much. It wasn't, it wasn't too much all at once. It was parsed out perfectly, but I'm only the reader of this final version. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, yeah. I wasn't seeing the, the pages in, in the writing group and God, God bless our, uh, our writing group friends uh i look at my completed book now and i see lines that are in there and you know and i go oh yeah you know samantha dunn helped me fix that line um helen malmgren uh helped me you know fix this line and it's it's just so funny that you you remember uh these people with so much adoration and admiration and and them reading your book they they you know it's not their baby so they 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 probably don't they're not going to recognize the line that they helped you tweak or, or or other fixes that they did but um yeah i'm a i'm a big believer in having the trusted reader thing whether you're in person or you're just communicating online and sharing your work via email but it's just uh, absolutely essential. So, um, so Devin, I, we were running out of time. How did that happen? I don't know. It's just so much fun talking to you. I could do it all day, but, uh, <laughs> Thank you. um, uh, real, real quick, uh, before we sign off, I want to put you on the spot and just off the top of your head, I want you to give me five bullet points for how to manage grief. Go. Well, <laughs> yeah, that is, that is really sort of unre unreasonable. Um, <laughs> I would say probably first would be uh, time. Mm -hmm. 
I think uh, having a sense of humor ultimately is important because it was very easy to, for me to just say, my father was the worst and that's that and I hate him. Um, but at some point I had to kind of look at the cartoonishness of my life and how him being in it was actually something that I desperately needed. Um, and so I, I think I can't take myself too seriously. Um, time, uh, I don't believe we do anything really alone unless we're hoping to fail miserably at something. So uh, I think you you talk to as many people as possible. And if if necessary, then you pay somebody to listen. Yeah. Uh, you know, get a therapist, get, you know, get somebody who is going to listen. Um, I think that you make sure that you don't isolate. I mean, that's probably a corollary to the last one. And a fifth one um, is probably a corollary to the, to the previous two is that keep doing a hobby, keep doing something that makes you out in the world. Because I don't know what your experience uh, has been uh, since your mother's passing, but when my father died, I wanted to uh, hide under a rock. I want, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I just, I wanted to uh, not make my bed because I just wanted to crawl back in it. Um, and so it was important for me to do, you know, it was important for me to make the dishes. It was important for me to, to have photons hit my face. Uh, it was important for me to uh, be among other humans mm -hmm. uh, and talk to people about what was happening. And over time, you know, all of a sudden one day I wasn't in, in you know, overwhelming grief. I spoke to family members. I spoke to a lot of family members who knew me, who knew my father. So even if I was complaining, uh, they had some sort of a basis of understanding. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? They had, yeah. we had yeah. some sort of like common history, which I think was important. How did you deal with it? Well, I'm, I'm still in, uh, the early days. It's only mm. been a month. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, but I will share with you, um, I was in D.C. when I got the call from my sister, and so um, I didn't get back to San Diego uh, for a, a week or so, and I went over to my sister's house, God, I think this was 10 days ago or so, and uh, we engaged in the very healthy ritual of getting shit-faced, and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, and, you know, and talking and telling stories about our mother. And uh, it was great. It was great. I felt horrible the next day. Uh, but it was it was it was very helpful. But uh, but yeah, I'm still in the kind of wanting to self isolate mode a little bit. I'm making myself get out and live. I have deadlines that I have to meet. I have a book coming out. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, there's that, I naturally have that urge to self-isolate anyway. So, um, well, on, on that note, um, Devin, it's just been so wonderful speaking with you. Your book is amazing. Uh, everyone who's listening, get your copy of 10,000 Miles with My Dead Father's Ashes. You will laugh out loud. Uh, you might cry. Uh, and you will absolutely connect with this story for what a body remembers a memoir of sexual assault and its aftermath what what can we expect from karen well uh initially 
Uh, we're going to have a wonderful book launch party on Tuesday, June 18th at 7.30 p.m. at the last bookstore. Uh, I don't know if you know Rich Ferguson, but he's going to be the MC, and there are going to be some other readers there as well, and uh, that will be the, the, the big book launch party. Oh, so you're in Los Angeles, or well, at least I'm, that's where the long that's where the that's where the launch is. Yeah, that's where gotcha. the launch is. Uh, yeah, so uh, well, a lot a lot of fun events ahead for both of us. Yeah. Anyway, I wish you every success with your book. That's going to be fantastic. Thank you so much, Devin. Great to talk to you. It was a pleasure, Karen.